discussion on uh, what would what would what popular preaching looks like today. I feel like a lot of what would be considered popular preaching today boils down to this. It's good communicators who know how to pander to certain crowds. I think that's what that's what constitutes like popular preaching because a lot of you, you we we have ways to equip ourselves to become good communicators in this day and age and so a lot of people can become good communicators even if they naturally aren't good communicators and and once you develop this skill set if you pander to certain groups you can be successful in preaching in in worldly terms in a lot of different ways let me give you a couple examples of what i mean here like I think today there's, there exists this crowd in our culture that wants a version of Jesus that gives them a, just a little better life, a little more peaceful life. And so preachers know this today. And so if you pander to that crowd, you can draw them in by presenting kind of a, a version of Jesus that's like a, a Zen Jesus, right? One who will... Uh, always have a way of calming you down and, and teaching you how to control your emotions and, you know, because every little thing's going to be all right. You know, that kind of Jesus, right? Bob Marley Jesus? I don't know. But, you, but you, you know, if, you're, if, you, if you develop a skill set of preaching and you want to pander to that crowd, there's very obvious ways to do that. And you can draw that crowd in. Another example is today there's, there's a, I think there's a large population in our culture that they come to church today merely to affirm their political leanings. Now, we know this is true, but like it or not, right? Everything's so polarized today when it comes to politics. Preachers know this, and so they can pander to those crowds and draw in whichever side they want. You know, if they want to get the liberal side, you just present to that crowd a very uber-liberal Jesus, you know, hippie Jesus, one that suddenly is concerned about the legalization of marijuana or something, or, you know, or, but if you want to draw in the conservatives and you want to pander to that crowd, you can present to them a Jesus that prefers that you would say the Pledge of Allegiance before you take communion or something like that, and, you know, has American flags all over your, your stage, and whatever it may be, but that's, what I'm saying is, you can pander to these crowds because if you know what they're looking for, you can give it to them, right? And so preachers today know that a lot of people show up to church just to validate their pursuit of a lavish lifestyle. And so they, they, if they want to pander to that crowd, and there's a lot of money in that crowd, right? So you can present to them a Jesus that is a, a glorified motivational speaker that wants you to be everything you want to be and have everything you want to have and and. And you, you were meant, this Jesus wants you to accomplish all of your hopes and dreams. And he died so that you would and so that you could. And so you need to, you know, shape up and, and live the right way. Or you'll be living in a van down by the river. Is, is that kind of, right? That's kind of the version of, of Jesus they want to present to you. And you can pander to that crowd and they'll come in and they'll give money and you'll make them happy because you're providing a product. You know? Oh, man, I always want to work that into a sermon. Finally did it. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot of preachers today that know that many people are, are coming to church just looking for a little less complicated life. You know, they, they have uh, struggles and, and, and going on in their mind. And so these, these preachers, they know we can pander to this crowd by presenting a, you know, kind of a pop psychology Jesus, right? This Jesus that always has a way of, you know, delivering a really 
you know, five-step plan, a really neatly packaged plan to fix all your anxiety, all your worries, and, you know, a, a, a Jesus that wants you to get more organized and is obsessed with fixing your daddy issues and those sorts of things. You, know, he, you show up to church in, in these churches to learn how relationships work and stuff like that, you know, like, you can draw this crowd that is looking for this, because so many people are looking for that, you can draw them in by presenting to them a version of Jesus that is wrapped up in the things they want to be wrapped up in. That's my point. So, like it or not, all across the world right now, people are gathering to church for a lot of different reasons. They have their ideal version of faith and their ideal version of Jesus. That's what they're looking for. And so if you can deliver to them what they're looking for, they'll keep coming back. And if you don't deliver what they're looking for, rejected. You are rejected, right? They'll go somewhere where they do present that version of Jesus. Well, just like that happens today, there was a similar circumstance back in biblical times, and we've talked about that as we've worked through the Gospel of Mark. We had all of these different crowds of people that we've examined as we've worked through this Gospel. Different people groups that are looking for different things. And so they got excited about Jesus for different reasons or rejected him for different reasons. And so, you, for example, like you had the, the crowds of people that just wanted endless signs and wonders. We've seen that as we've marched through this gospel. They wanted more bread. They wanted more healings. And so when Jesus would stop doing those things, they would stop following him. Or when he would start teaching hard teachings, they're like, we're not interested in that. We just want the signs and the wonders and the healings and those sorts of things. And so when he was delivering the product they wanted, they were on board. But when he stopped doing that, they bailed. The Pharisees, they, they wanted a Messiah too, but the Pharisees wanted a Messiah that wouldn't interfere with their religious rituals. And so Jesus did interfere with that, and so they set out to trip him up. Then you had like the zealots, and so this was that crowd amongst the Jews that they wanted this military uprising. They wanted a Messiah who would rally Israel, and, and they would be able to obtain their freedom from Rome and, and get out from underneath their thumb. There was the disciples even. What were they wrapped up in? Well, when we see them talking and, and things... Uh, amongst Jesus, they were wrapped up in, in this future life in which they would be honored by everyone. Lord, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand? Can we be honored almost as much as you in your kingdom? They, were, they had their selfish, selfish motivations, and they had a version of Jesus that they desired too. That was also for all the wrong reasons. And so as we start into this text today, I want you to ask yourself, what Jesus are you looking for today? What Jesus are you longing for? What is it that has you coming back? What, what excites you about Jesus and does it jive with the actual Jesus? I think that's a great question. Are you after the actual Jesus as presented in Scripture? Or are you after some ideal version of him? Are you after some ideal version of his kingdom that you have concocted for whatever reason. I, I think today's passage is a great example of how a whole lot of people can get excited about Jesus for all the wrong reasons. Today's passage is the triumphal entry, and it's a bunch of people excited about him, but they're not excited about who he actually is and what he actually came to do. But that all of this excitement has 
has culminated in this moment in which Jesus enters Jerusalem. It's the triumphal entry, and it marks the beginning of what we refer to as the Passion Week, or the Holy Week. It's the last week of Jesus' life. And so when you read in the Gospels, and, and, and like when you get in John, it's like the half, half of his Gospel is like all about this Passion Week. And so Mark's Gospel here, this latter third, is all about this one week. And so, you know, we, we unconsciously create all of these different versions of Jesus or maybe buy into different versions of Jesus that aren't true and versions of Jesus in which he is passionate about something that we really want him to be passionate about. And there's all these different ideas of what Jesus is, is and is not passionate about. But when you study the Passion Week, which is what we're going to do here for the next several months, you get to discover what he is actually passionate about. And so I think it's such a crucial time for us right now as we walk into the, the, the coming months of study together that we really hone in on just what Jesus was all about. What was he truly passionate about and does that excite us? Are we excited about what excites him? Are we passionate about what he is passionate about? We get to you know, evaluate and reflect upon ourselves and what we really believe about Jesus. And so that's what I wanna encourage you to do today and what we see spoiler alert is that Jesus is passionate about his mission he's passionate about his mission to save his people from their sins and so we're going to study the triumphal entry today in Mark chapter 11 we're just going to take 11 verses and I want to do something that I don't normally do I'm going to read the whole passage all 11 verses and sometimes we go sometimes I hear I get feedback from you from time to time you know some of you are like, you know, I like it when you go one verse at a time, and some of you hate that. <laughs> some of you like it when I read the whole passage all at once. And, and so for those of you who prefer that, today, today's your day. Well, I'm going to draw out five details uh, about these uh, 11 verses, and then we're going to talk about three takeaways uh, from this moment in time. So let's read Mark chapter 11 together, the first 11 verses. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to, him, said, said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them, that Je told them what Jesus said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and, their, and, and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches and they had cut from, that they had, had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Okay. So five details about this moment that I want to elaborate on. Here's the first one. They were in Bethphage and Bethany. Okay, so these are two small towns. We've been talking in the, in the past, in the previous weeks. Jesus has been making his pilgrimage, like many Jews at this point in time, 
to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Now they finally arrive. They're staying just two miles outside of Jerusalem at, at Bethphage and Bethany. And so this is significant because something has just happened in Bethany that we don't read about in Mark, but we do read about in John's gospel. Where he's staying at while he's in Jerusalem celebrating Passover is at the house of Lazarus. And so in, in Bethany is where Lazarus lives, and he, he just raised him from the dead. That just happened. And so we remember Mary and Martha wanting to get Jesus to come, and, and, and hurry, hurry, get here, hurry. And Jesus is late, and they, they want him to heal, their, uh, heal Lazarus, and he shows up late, and, and Jesus is like, hold up, even though John is dead, he, he says, or I'm sorry, even though Lazarus is dead, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He says that as Lazarus is dead, right? That's a, that's a pretty big thing to say. Pretty big. How, how is he going to back that up? Well, he's going to raise Lazarus back to life and so that's what he does to prove that he does have the authority to say what he just said he, he can make that claim he has the authority to back it up and so that is the is the significant moment that took place just before this triumphal entry this is what is swirling around about Jesus at this point he just raised the guy back to life Lazarus it's just two miles down the road in Bethany you can go there and talk to him and and meet Mary and Martha this is a pretty significant moment. Now, detail number two. He's at the Mount of Olives. This is a very significant place. And so the, the Mount of Olives, this is, think of the triumphal entry like this. We've got a parade route that's taking place. He's at the Mount of Olives at the beginning of this parade route. And it sits 2,600 feet above sea level. And it overlooks the Temple Mount. And so he's there in preparation to carry out this triumphal entry, and we got to realize that Jesus is there very intentionally to fulfill prophecy. He knows exactly what he is doing. I want to read to you from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It says this. This is the passage that no doubt was going through the mind of Jesus just before the triumphal entry. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey? So here's this prophecy, centuries old by this point in time, running through Jesus' mind. I have come to fulfill this prophecy. And so he's at the Mount of Olives, looking at the temple, orchestrating this moment in which he gets this donkey to him to fulfill his mission that he has come to carry out. So he's going to start this triumphal entry at the Mount of Olives, descend down to the temple, and then 40 days after his resurrection, right, he's back at the Mount of Olives, and he ascends into heaven at this very point. So that's a significant detail. Detail number three, if you're writing them down. In preparation for this prophecy, he sends two of his disciples to go get this donkey. Did you see that? Like, go, go find this colt. You're going to go into town, and when you get there, you're going to find this colt tied up, and you're going you're to bring it back to me. If anybody tries to hassle you or anything, just let them know that, you know, Jesus sent you. He's going to bring it back here shortly. He doesn't need it for very long. He just needs it for this uh, one moment. 
And so how did Jesus know that the cult was going to be there? Now, this is something that when you get into the commentaries, as I love to do, this is something that theologians argue about. How did he know the cult was there? Did he know supernaturally? Uh, certainly we know he's capable of this. Or did he prearrange this? And you'll, you'll, you'll read scholars going back and forth. And I'm like, I, I don't care. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I just, I, it's, it's funny how, the, how you read these different arguments, arguments and things. I, don't th I think that misses the point. Whether it's prearranged by Jesus or whether it is supernatural, I think the point and the reason we're given these details is to let us know that Jesus is in control of these circumstances. Whether he is in control supernaturally and knew that cult was going to be there or whether he prearranged with someone that he knew from in town or with Lazarus or whatever, he is in control of these circumstances because he is very deliberately fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. I think it's also important that we're given the detail that this is a cult upon which no one has ever sat. This is a cult that was set aside for a, a special purpose. And so no one has ever ridden this cult. It's much like oftentimes if you had an animal that was set aside for a sacrifice, you wouldn't use this animal for any farm activity. You wouldn't put a yoke around it or anything like that to, to run the plow. You, you, that ox was set aside as a sacrifice, or, or if you had a special horse, it would be set aside for the king. No one got to ride that horse. That was exclusively for the king. Or even in the Old Testament, you see some animals were set aside to pull exclusively the Ark of the Covenant. And so if, if that was their job, they didn't do anything else. That was their one job to pull that. And so this donkey had one job. He was set aside for this one moment. And that cult was waiting, waiting there to take Jesus through the streets of Jerusalem to the temple. Now the word cult there, when you and I think of a cult, we think of a horse. Because our word cult is uh, you know, exclusively for a young horse. But their word for cult could talk about various younger, young animals. Like a mule, a donkey, a horse, or whatever. So this cult though is a cult of a donkey specifically here. That's what fulfills scripture and it's also the message that Jesus wants to send he 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 is not going to be their version of a king that comes in on a white horse you know flexing and you know marching through town all cocky I'm the king this is Jesus who comes in on a foal of a donkey very humble humble approach to this fourth de de detail we're working through these quick aren't we the fourth detail are the cloaks and the branches I want to point out to you that uh, it says many spread their cloaks on the road this is this is the people in Jerusalem rolling out the red carpet for Jesus this this tells us that Jesus is being very intentional about fulfilling this prophecy and, and, and being a part of this moment but people are recognizing why he is there and doing what he is doing they recognize that he is coming through here very intentionally and they are recognizing him as royalty the, the red carpet treatment here you I would I think uh, throwing their cloaks on the ground it reminds me of like that old tradition we have in our culture where like you know you're taking your girlfriend on a date and the mud puddles there and you take off your coat and put it over the mud puddle to honor them does it had that, has that ever happened for real pretty sure if I ever did that my wife would be like we have to clean that now why did you do that we paid good money for that but this is a way, where, where that tradition comes from is that in this day, what they're doing by taking their cloaks and things like that and, and putting it on the road, they're, they're, they're saying, hey, we submit to this royalty. 
We are submitting to this king. You can walk over us because you are above us. You are our king. And so this was a customary action that you would do to honor someone who you recognized to be an authority above you as king. They were submitting to him in that way. And so, you know, rather than be one of the people who threw their cloaks on the ground, though, I would be one of the ones that went for the leafy branches instead because <laughs> I wouldn't want to get my cloak dirty. Um, but it, it, there was leafy branches that they would, would put on the road here, too. Did you notice what wasn't mentioned? There's no palm branches. This is Palm Sunday. Right? There's no palm branches mentioned here. These are leafy, leafy branches near the Mount of Olives, olive trees and things like that. When you're, when you're reading about the triumphal entry, it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And there's no palm branches mentioned in Matthew. There's no palm branches mentioned in Mark. There's no palm branches mentioned in Luke. But you're not crazy. They are mentioned in John. <laughs> so there were palm branches there uh, being a part of this. It just wasn't the only thing that they're lying on on the street. And so, palm, but that's the inspiration behind what we call Palm Sunday, where, where we celebrate the triumphal entry the week before Easter. And so there, there were palm branches on the road, but people were grabbing any and everything that they could get their hands on. Leafy branches, tall grass, palm branches, their cloaks, anything to cover up the road to roll out that red carpet and really make this a special moment for Jesus as he enters town. That brings us to the fifth detail, and this one is, is packed with truth, and it tells us that everyone knew exactly what was happening. It's what they said. They say, Hosanna. Let me read to you, let me read to you this last thing that they were shouting as he was coming through the streets of Jerusalem. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And so you have this word, Hosanna, and then you have these two pronouncements of blessings, and then Hosanna. So Hosanna is kind of like the parentheses that wrap up these two blessings. I want to come back to what the word Hosanna means in just a minute. I want to talk about these two blessings first. This first blessing is, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that comes from a Hallel psalm, Psalm 118. You can go back and read that. It was customary for everyone to be singing this psalm when they came to celebrate Passover or even uh, the Feast of Booths. I believe they also sang it there. But at, the, at Passover, you would come singing this. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it was a way to declare to everyone, blessed are all of you who are coming in the name of the Lord. You're gathering on this pilgrimage to Jerusalem in the name of the Lord. You're blessed. This is the right, good thing to do. But they are using it to target Jesus because they say, Hosanna. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As in, this guy, blessed is this one, Jesus, who is coming in the name of the Lord. He is on this triumphal entry and we are honoring him on the street here as he walks over us, blessed is he because he is coming specifically in the name of the Lord in a special way. The second blessing tells us what they mean by that. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That's not a Hillel psalm. That's not something they would have customarily sang. Because they are identifying him explicitly here 
as this prophesied descendant of David, the Messiah. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. This is the one who's ushering this in. This is the one who's going to make this happen. He is the Messiah. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. What's that word Hosanna mean? It means save now. Save us now. Save us. So here's essentially what they're saying. Save us now, you who are coming in the name of the Lord. Save us now, you who are a, a descendant of David, the Messiah. Save us now in the highest. That means like in the presence of God, who is clearly with you, who is clearly here. The, the temple represents his physical presence on this earth. Save us now in his presence. Save us right now. And they all had their versions of what they wanted saved from, right? Because there's all those different people groups there. Excited to be saved in a way that they wanted saved. Excited to have that salvation and their ideal version of salvation. Their ideal version of this Messiah. But they were very explicitly calling Jesus this Messiah. In Matthew's gospel, they say, Hosanna to the son of David. This guy is the Messiah who's going to save us. In Luke's gospel, it says they are shouting, Blessed is the king who comes. He's, they, this guy is that king we're hoping for. John's gospel says, Blessed is the king of Israel. Right? We put all these together, and it's abundantly clear what's on their mind. Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Christ. This is the guy. And this is his victory march through town from the Mount of Olives, descending all the way to the temple. And it's making a tremendous amount of noise because of all these people who are excited about their ideal version of who they think this guy is. It's all a bunch of misplaced expectations, right? Can Jesus deliver on all of their expectations? Well, no. Because unlike preachers today, Jesus panders to no one. He's not going to pander to any of these crowds, which is why days later we're going to study about how this is the same crowd yelling crucify him. Because they, he didn't deliver on their expectations, right? He could have pandered to each one of these groups. He could have pandered to them in a way that he could have had an impressive worldly, earthly version of this kingdom, but his kingdom is not of this world, remember? He's not going to surrender his throne by submitting to their ideal version of him. He's not going to do it. He's not going to surrender his heavenly kingdom just to pander to their ideal version of himself. He rode in on this donkey as a sign of peace, like a lamb being led to slaughter, because that was his mission. Like a lamb being led to slaughter all the way right down to the temple. And he went there to establish peace. Peace that goes way beyond what their minds could even wrap around at that point in time, right? Peace between us and God. That was his mission. That's what he was passionate about, saving his people from their sins. But can you imagine being Jesus in that moment? Just for a moment, just try to put yourself in that position. You're there, you're on a very specific mission. A very specific mission called by the Father to complete, to execute. And all these people are excited about you for all the wrong reasons. They get you wrong. And there you are marching through the streets. People excited about you for all the wrong reasons, but you stay on mission. It's just, it's incredible. Like, 
you have to you have to understand that anytime you read a story in scripture we have the tendency to read ourselves into it in, in that way but but understand like we are the crowd we are the crowd we get jesus wrong in so many ways mankind is the same today as as they were back then but i think because of that we can have a lot of hope from this moment the, these circumstances give me hope in, in three ways i, I want to uh, give you as takeaways. I mentioned I was going to have three takeaways. I think for, for me, this is it. Like when we think about this exact moment in redemptive history, it's, it's fascinating how all of these people are so excited about this Messiah, but, they, but yet they have it all wrong. Here's three things I'm thankful for, though, in light of that. I'm thankful that Jesus died for people who don't know as much as they think they know. That gives me relief. Like so often we get so, uh, so sure of ourselves that, we, that we, we've, we've got this faith thing figured out. We have Jesus figured out. We know who he is. We've got to realize that this crowd, like there were experts in that crowd. This was a crowd that, that, that was singing scriptures that we have to go and look up because we don't know from heart. This is a, this is a crowd that just, that knew all of these things, but yet they just got Jesus all wrong. I mean, he, but, but yet Jesus goes to the cross anyway. He, he still marches through them on mission anyway. And to me, that's a, that's a relief because without a doubt, you and I are going to stand on the other side of eternity and we're going to have this moment where we think, man, I, I got so much wrong. I just got so much wrong. There's just so much that I didn't know. There's so much that I didn't understand. This is so much bigger than what I was even capable of comprehending on any level. But yet we will be on the other side of eternity with Jesus because of Jesus. That is a relief, because I know there's so much that I don't get right. But Jesus saves me anyway. Second takeaway, I'm thankful for God's word to give us moments like this so that we can work on what we actually believe about Jesus, right? We don't, we don't know as much as we think we know, but we get to work on that. And the tool that he gives us is, is scripture. It's his word. You know, so we pray for the Spirit to illuminate Scripture to us, and we, and we study together as a church family. You know there's safety in that, You're right? Because any, any one of us alone, we, we would no doubt get so much wrong, but collectively together as we study God's Word, empowered by the Spirit, we can get a lot of things right. And this is how we can know things, that we can know truth. It's how we can grow in our knowledge of who God actually is. Our ideas of Jesus are so tainted by how much time we spend apart from God's word and in our culture, from culture to culture, from this century to that century, there's all of these different preferences that skew the version of, of Jesus in that time or in that place in the world. And our only chance at really, really conforming to the will of God and conforming to an understanding of God that is true to who he is is by being a part of the local church and studying God's word that he gave us. This is the tool that through all those different times in history and all those different cultures and places on earth, this is how there is consistency. Apart from meeting together as a church and studying God's word, there would be no consistency. We would be all over the place. And so I'm just thankful that God has so graciously given us his word and, and given us his spirit so that we can know him. My third takeaway is this, and this is, this is the big one that really just was profound as I studied this moment of the triumphal entry. I'm thankful that God fulfills 
and accomplishes his purposes even when I'm confused and unaware, right? Because we're just like that crowd. We get so many things wrong. Like, we have a finite understanding of God. But I'm just thankful that, like, my finite, limited understanding of God, it can't mess up his redemptive purposes. I can't limit God. I can't mess up his plan. Think about it. All of these people with all of these different ideas about who the Messiah was, all shouting his glory for all the wrong reasons, and yet God orchestrates this unique moment to his glory. That gives me a tremendous amount of assurance. As I live out my life and I make this pathetic effort to try to make much of God and, and gather his people and, and preach and sing and those sorts of things, like I, we just get so much wrong. But I'm so thankful that despite our pitiful efforts, God's going to accomplish his will regardless. He's going to accomplish his purposes regardless. If he can use and orchestrate this moment and the triumphal entry to his glory, he can use this too. It gives me a tremendous amount of peace. Like, he's got this. Like, we say that so easily. Like, oh, God's got this. No, he's got it. Like, way beyond what, like, that's true beyond what we can even comprehend. He does. He really, he's got this in a profound sense. Whatever this is, whatever's going on, he's got this. And so these are the truths that I wanted to meditate upon this morning as we go into a time of communion. That when we get our ideas of Jesus wrong, I don't have perfect theology, I don't have perfect doctrine, and neither do you. And we're all stumbling together, locking arms, trying to partner together to pursue God and to make much of him. But it's his gospel, it's his gospel, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension that makes this happen that accomplishes our salvation. All of our hope isn't in anything here that we're doing. All of our hope is in who he is. And so we come back to communion to remember who he is and what he's done. That's where we find peace. That's where we find rest in who he actually is. And so let's, let's take that bread this morning and just go back to those fundamental truths that our Christianity that we know so well. We remember that bread to remember he lived a sinless life. And when we put faith in that, it's that sinlessness, it's that righteousness that's imputed to us through faith. And so when we stand on the other side in eternity, I'm there because of his righteousness, not my own. I'm there because he got it all right, not because I got it all right. We take that juice to remember his blood shed on the cross atones for all of my sins. I'll be there on the other side in eternity, not because I made up for what I did wrong. It's because he paid the penalty for my sins. And so all our sins are washed away in that sense. All our hope is in that. It's in, it's in who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. Be excited about that Jesus because that is the actual Jesus. That's what he was actually passionate about. And that's what we should be passionate about, too, as his, as his followers. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this moment in Scripture that teaches us the magnitude of who you are. That at least on some small scale, we can take one step closer to understanding you this morning, having read this. Lord, we're so grateful that despite all of the efforts we 
produced to make much of you, despite all of that being like filthy rags, as your word says in Isaiah, Lord, that this can go to your glory. This can, this, this gathering can make much of you, and it, and it can be this profound life, spiritually nourishing moment together because of you and because of who you are, and our hope is in that today. So, Lord, I pray for those gathered here today. Lord, all of our motivations for getting up this morning were, were different. And, and just like that crowd, Lord, we get so distracted by who we want you to be and, and what we want this to be. And, Lord, we come together to repent of all of the wrong motivations, all of the wrong reasons, and to conform to the right reasons. Lord, we want to be passionate about your gospel because that's what you were passionate about. As your, as your followers, as Christians, Lord, we want to be about what you were actually about. So, Lord, as we go into this time of communion, would you correct us? Lord, would you please grant us a time of just genuine repentance? And, Lord, having repented and, and conformed to your will, may we make the most of this by encouraging one another. Because everybody's here, everybody here, we're, we're just... We got so many things distracting us and so many things we're dealing with. And we want to help one another all to your glory as well. And so, Lord, I, Lord, I pray your blessing on this time. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.